When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. into the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 52. The podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Located in northern Minnesota, they offer the premier complete rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience. Find out more about Pine Ridge Grouse Camp at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dogtra Callers. If you're in the market for a new tracking and training caller, I suggest checking out the Dogtra 2700 T and B. This is a fully capable electronic training collar combined with an onboard beeper unit that utilizes three different modes for all hunting scenarios. Find out more about the Dogtra 2700 T and B and all of their other offerings at dogtra.com. 
and by Gordy and Sons Outfitters, the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. At Gordy and Sons Outfitters, they have what you need to get you where you are going. Find out more at GordyandSons.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog. Find out more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. And last but definitely not least, new partner on the Project Upland podcast. We're excited to have them on board. You may have heard of them before if you're listening to some of the other Upland bird hunting podcasts, but we're happy to have them with us. The good folks at Dakota 283 Kennels. That's right, Dakota 283 Dog Kennels. Unparalleled pet protection, built tough and long-lasting to hold up to all outdoor and hunting adventures. I'll tell you a little bit more about them in the coming weeks, but for now, go to dakota283.com and use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD when you purchase any kennel and you'll get either of the Dine and Dash options for 50% off. Buy a kennel from Dakota283, use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD, you'll get 50% off their Dine and Dash. Check them out, dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway is Sean Ceranic. Sean kindly left us a review via the Apple iTunes podcast app. We appreciate that, Sean. We'll have some Project Upland gear on the way very soon. You could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show by leaving the podcast a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post on Facebook, or send us some listener feedback. I've been hearing from a ton of listeners lately getting tons of great suggestions and general podcast feedback i love it i love to hear from the listeners send me an email anytime nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right here we go a couple quick tidbits before we jump into today's interview a reminder that project upland will be at pheasant fest upcoming this month february 22nd 23rd 24th project upland will be in booth number 118 i'll be there i hope you will too come and find us project upland at pheasant fest and a quick shout out to my buddy jerry havel owner and operator of pine ridge grouse camp they just released the announcement on something really cool they're doing this spring may 3rd through the 5th called pine ridge grouse camp upland training course put together a little camp slash course for people that are looking to take their upland hunting to the next step they've got the agenda the instructors everything listed they created an event on facebook look up pine ridge grouse camp on facebook to find out more about this event check it out it looks like it's going to be a ton of fun i'm not sure if i can make it there i hope so if i can be there i'd love to record a podcast and hang out with the people that are attending the camp but we'll see my schedule's a little up in the air look up pine ridge grouse camp on facebook and check out the upland training course okay here we go today's interview jumping in with our guest mike nadusky mike is a north carolina upland bird hunter he hasn't been there his whole life but he's there now we talk about upland bird hunting in north carolina we talk a lot about nabda as mike has been a nabda judge for three years now we talk about woodcock hunting grouse hunting pheasant hunting in north carolina as well as a whole bunch more let's get into today's show and welcome to the project upland podcast mike nadusky All right, Mike, here we go. It's Friday afternoon 
and welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this evening, man? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure to have you on. Looking forward to chatting today about bird dogs, bird hunting, maybe double guns, maybe uh, maybe we'll get into some of that other stuff. But but most importantly, I think uh, a region that uh, that needs a little bit of love from the Project Upland podcast. I'll be the first to admit it. Uh, the Southeast, and we've had a lot of people had a lot of people clamoring for more guests and and more coverage on that area, and rightfully so. There's it's rich with history and tradition, and I'm excited to uh, to talk to a, a south, southeastern bird hunter. So with that, why don't you put us on the map, Mike? Tell us a little bit about where you're from, kind of what you do, what you love about the area that you live in, with as it pertains to upland hunting. And while you do that, I'm going to slide to my right and grab a beer out of my fridge, right? Excellent. Well, I, I started with a beer, so um, I'm glad that you'll be able to join me in that. Perfect. Uh, well, so I, actually, you know, you, I'm located in North Carolina now in, in pretty much the smack middle of the state um, between Raleigh and Greensboro. Uh, but admittedly, I'm a transplant. Obviously, you can tell by my accent. Um, I'm from Massachusetts originally, uh, but spent a, a fair amount of time in Wisconsin, uh, both in school and in work. Um, that's where I fell in love with uh, particularly grouse and woodcock hunting. Um, and then just due to the nature of my wife and I's uh, jobs, I've moved around a little bit, um, and now we're here in North Carolina. Awesome, man. And so moving down to North Carolina, what uh, what does the upland hunting look like for you there? Yeah, it's... Um, it's a challenge, I would say. I think that um, you, know, uh, you and I were sort of chatting in our, our pre-talk. Uh, you know, woodcock is, is something that you know I've really enjoyed hunting in Wisconsin, and, and that is, I would argue, underrated um, down here, particularly in, in from a wintering uh, aspect. Our seasons are late; they run later than anywhere else. Um, we we, uh, we actually just wrapped up our season uh, on Tuesday. I uh, got back from the NAVDA annual meeting and. Um, lovely cold Minneapolis on Sunday night and was able to get out for a last afternoon on Monday uh, and moved a, a good handful of birds. Um, you know, we still have quail around uh, to a certain extent. Public lands are tough on that front. Um, you know, but if you burn a lot of boot leather and are willing to push um, and take your time, you can find them. Um, and then I would actually also say uh, sort of a, a very hidden small gem if you will is that we do have a, a wild pheasant population in north carolina uh, on the outer banks uh, you have to take a ferry to get there and you're most likely going to camp um, and again spend a decent amount of time trying to find them um, but it's a it's an interesting opportunity if you can time the weather right to to go out in november and hang out on the outer banks and chase pheasants Man, so many so many directions I want to take that. I was going to make a comment about uh, if you thought it was cold in Minneapolis on Sunday, you should have uh, you should have hung around for a few more days because that's, well, that's very true. I'm <laughs> glad I escaped. Yeah, but uh, you know, you're no you're no stranger stranger to uh, tr- to the cold. You know, given given that you're you haven't been down there your whole life, but yeah, no. it was it was quite a week. I mean. I personally do my best to embrace the cold up here. And for the most part, mm-hmm. I do that. You have to, you've got to get outside. You got to get your fresh air. But yeah. this week was, it was, I don't want to say bad. I mean, it, it was cold. Like it was, it was really windy. It was the dangerous cold that everybody, you know, the news, news picked it up. Of course, like it was, it was something else just because three days in a row we were below zero. I mean, today was the first day since, I don't know if it was Tuesday or Monday night that we got above zero 
And I, dog and I got out for a walk in the woods today. It was still pretty cold, but I'm looking forward yeah. to uh, to staying on this side of zero for a, a few days at least. That's very fair. <laughs> yeah. So, ah, man, I, I know nothing about the Outer Banks other than mm-hmm. it sounds super interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I haven't done it, um, but okay. through some connections I've made here, um, I've I've had some conversations, particularly with a, a gentleman that has done it a bunch. Um, and it's sort of the the lower Outer Banks, um, south of Hatteras, um, and so that's uh, I want to say it's Cape Lookout National Seashore. Um, and maybe some folks are accusing me of hot spotting, but if you're willing to put the time and the effort to get out there and do it, I, I think you've earned it. Um, you know, logistically, you have to take a ferry. Um, you can you can um, ferry over with your car. I know a lot of guys that will ferry over with a truck and camp, um, but it's remote, remote. Um, you know, you very well could get stuck out there with the weather. Um, you know, it's it's the ocean in November and December, so uh, pick your battles. But if you get out there and the the weather is great, uh, the guy that that I know that does it, you know, he kind of does a, a cast and blast. You know, pheasant hunts, surf fishes camps out on the beach um you know it's hard to argue with a weekend like that yeah that's a cast and blast that is not going to be found everywhere that's for sure that sounds like a pretty wild hunt maybe one of these days when you get out there and do it we'll have to you have to have you back on and you can tell us about it yeah for sure all right so you were in you were in minneapolis last week for the navda 50th anniversary conference is that right yeah, yeah, it was a great time. Tell us about it, because I I saw a lot coming out of it. You know, from a Project Dublin perspective, AJ was mm-hmm. there, and uh, Ben Jones from the Rough Grouse Society was there. I had a chance to catch up with both of those guys this week. It really looked like it looked like everybody's having a having a really good time, and it just seemed like a great overall meeting. And kind of the vibe coming out of it on the other side is pretty high. I'm starting to see more stuff from NAVDA, and I know they have some big initiatives and stuff. So tell us. I guess tell us a little bit about the conference and then kind of dive into your association and involvement with NAVDA because it's more so than just a, a member. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the, the conference is always a great time. Um, you know, we have one every year in January. Uh, and I, my, my running joke is, you know, it's like coming coming home to your family that you're actually like excited to see, right? <laughs> um, you yeah. know, so it's a, it's just, for me, it's always a great opportunity to go and see a bunch of folks that I don't get to see super often that I'm particularly close with that I have a lot of fun with and, and have an immense amount of mutual interest with. Um, so just from like a personal connecting with friends and whatnot perspective, that's always an excellent opportunity. And I, and I would say that's a big part of NAVDA for me. Um, you know, it was really interesting. Um, so you and I are, are, you know, they would cast as the millennial generation, if you will. And there was a lot of conversation about that this year at the annual meeting. Uh, First and foremost, they kicked off the annual meeting focusing on a strategic plan, which is really neat for NAVDA to to sit down and and say, we need to talk about where we're going and how we're going to get there and what we want to do. And and to talk about young folks in that, you know, particularly folks our age, you know, there, there's a great amount of opportunity there. You know, I think you're starting to see, starting to see with the R3 movement pieces that focusing on youth and young children is great, but focusing on, you know, college age folks to mid thirties is really uh, an area for growth that, that we're not hitting, uh, you know, because 
you know, we have time, we have money, you know, um, you know, and we have passion, right? So the big thing, you know, that they all talk about with millennials is our passion piece. And we want to do things that are important to us. Um, and for the folks that are involved in conservation and hunting and fishing, you know, that's what we're shouting from the rooftops. I mean, think about how fast project Upland has caught on. And, and I, I'm guessing, but I would imagine that your, your sweet spot demographic is that 25 to 35, maybe 40. Um, and so it was really neat to see Navda talk about that. And then, you know, as you talked about, AJ was there, uh, Ben Jones from, from Rough Grouse Society, this new CEO was there, who's fantastic. Um, and then Howard Vincent, who's the CEO of Pheasants and Quail Forever, was also there. They actually sat on a panel together and uh, that was a, they each sort of had about five to 10 minutes to talk and then each sat on a panel and they all talked about, uh, you know, this initiative to get more folks engaged and how it's on us you know there's everybody's got their favorite cover right that they want to wake up early in the morning and drink a cup of coffee and go to with just their dog but at the same time it's very much on us to to meet folks and take them hunting and maybe not take them to your favorite place but be willing to to take them out and show them the woods or show them the fields or the duck marsh or wherever and put that time in and that sacrifice because that's the only way we're going to grow i would actually say that it's unique in my opinion navda exists for for the promotion of the versatile dog breeds right and so everybody's heard the saying you can't have a bird dog without birds you know navda you know puts that into action by by partnering with rough grouse society quail forever pheasants forever you know we have active partnership agreements with them Uh, we do a lot of cross promotion with materials terms of publishing things in their magazine and blogs, utilizing some of their stuff in our materials. Every test you ever go to from a NAVDA perspective, you know, the senior judge generally will talk about their conservation partners and sponsors. Uh, you know, I'm actually myself, I'm a judge. I became a judge three years ago. Uh, and so it's been a big part of my, my NAVDA experience. Um, a couple other big things I would say to come out of the meeting, uh, uh, so NAVDA now has an Instagram account. I'm actually one of the, the point people for that, which is really cool. Um, I think that, again, going back to that millennials and younger piece, you know, they're not on Facebook. And so, so NAVDA recognized that and made the move over. Um, you know, I, it's fascinating. You talk about the power of, of Instagram, which I'm sort of sure some people are rolling their eyes. But let's be honest, Nick, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if that, if we didn't start chatting with each other over DMs, you know. Uh, totally. And so, you know, that's a, it's a funny thing. Um, I was having this conversation with my wife, like people can knock social media all they want. But if you use it in the right way, you build engagement, you build affinity and you build um, connections with folks, um, learn new things, go new places um, and all of that. Um, and so particularly this year, I've seen that in my hunting opportunities, getting to just chat with folks about different places. Um, you know, I actually went to, to Oklahoma, um, earlier this month on a hunting trip, um, and know some folks, you know, you know, digitally, if you will, um, that were really helpful in, in helping find the right cover and habitat because we were striking out the first few days. Um, and so to see NAVDA embrace that is, is really neat. Um, I would say lastly, and sort of along with that, if, if folks haven't seen NAVDA this year for the first time is launching a film festival, I think, which is really neat, um, focused on um, what we're calling it is what's your NAVDA. And so, so asking our membership or others that are involved with NAVDA to share, um, to put together a, a short, if you will, sharing what 
NAVDA means to them, you know, and, and we're going to use that to continue, um, you know, to, to show our message and share what we're about and um, hopefully continue to grow the organization. Excellent. Heck of an overview. Again, you put a ton of ideas in my head, things I want to talk to you about. First, sure. I'm, I'm sorry. That was a lot. <laughs> no, that was, that was really good. I, I appreciate it. And I imagine the listeners would too. And I think you raised a lot of good points, but I do want to clear the air. Mike, now you know, because again, obviously we're Instagram buddies. We we're joking about that now, but I've got an English setter. So, where yeah. did, what what is where does Navda? You know, am I not allowed in the club, or or how does that work? I I know actually, uh, there's a gentleman out of Pennsylvania, um, Kurt Fry. He's a Navda senior judge, an invitational judge, and he's passed a handful of setters in the invitational. So, um, you know, you are more than welcome. Actually, one of my my utter best friends and mentors, um, he has uh, an English pointer, uh, and I, I love that dog sometimes more than my own, um, and he <laughs> is a duck machine, uh, so you are, you are more than welcome in NAVDA. You know, we, we take uh, versatile breeds, so um, the way that we generally classify that, right, is pointing breeds, um, and so, you know, setters, pointers, um, I myself, I have two German short hairs and a wire hair. Um, French Britneys, Poodle Pointers, Griffons, you know, anything you would think of. Munsterlanders. Uh, you know, Munsterlanders, the, you know, the, the Craig Koshik continental breeds, if you yeah, will. Yeah, yep. Gotcha. And I, I kind of said that facetiously because I am familiar sure. enough with NAVDA to know that they are a very welcoming community. And I think it's awesome because they're so well established in what they do and the Mm -hmm. opportunities that they provide for people to see dogs, see dogs being trained. You've got the social aspect of the chapters. I just, I think there's so much there. And to your point about, you know, you were joking a little bit about the power of social media and certainly there was a time for those jokes, but definitely at project Upland, I mean, we see it, very clear the power of social media i mean we a lot of the what we do is built off of it and it's incredible the impact and the influence brands or organizations can have on there and it was funny i was talking about how after the navda meeting i had sort of i didn't almost didn't know where it was coming from i had talked to a few people that were there but i sort of felt this vibe and this presence of navda well sure enough navda really got their Instagram account going this week and being a millennial, I'm on Instagram, you know, probably more than I need to admit, but there it was, I could see it. I could see the the post from the conference and I could see all that stuff. And it's, if I'm seeing it, a lot of other people are too. And that's, that's kind of the point that you were making. And I, I just, I do think it's really powerful stuff, but I don't think there's an, I'm well, I know there's not an app, the chapter in my hometown. I wish there was, and it's probably uh probably a reason reason enough for me to figure out how to start one but i think we've got one in northern minnesota there was up in there's one up in hibbing i think ron bain was here judging something last year but how does how does one go about starting a nabda chapter yeah um i i'm not sure of the uh immense specifics or, or super micro specifics i want to say it's you have to get a, a um, i want to say it's 10 people if you have 10 people together um you put together bylaws and um, apply to be a, a chapter. Um, I do know, like in your area, the, the Minnesota chapter, um, they actually do a great job. They're a really big chapter, and they do, do stuff um, you know, in the city, south of the cities, and north of the cities, but I don't know if they get all the way up to, to Duluth, um, but I'm sure somebody uh, from their chapter is going to listen to this and, and chime in to 
one or both of us. Um, that would be great. Let but if me folks know. Are, <laughs> yeah, if folks are, but if folks are interested in starting a chapter, all that information is uh, on our website. Uh, that's navda.org. Um, so N-A-V-H-D-A.org. Um, and so, you know, they could, they could get that information and, um, there's some things uh, that, that I do know uh, at a national level they're having conversations about, about helping new chapters get off the ground. You know, you have some areas with a lot of chapters and some areas that, that don't. And so, you know, I think that organizationally we're recognizing that and want to um, support folks that, that want to be a part of the organization. You know, for, for example, uh, when I lived in Milwaukee, I had four NAVDA chapters within an hour of my house. Um, so I had a lot of folks to train with, a lot of places to go, you know, um, give my dogs different scenarios, different locations, different dogs, you know, within an hour. I moved to North Carolina uh, and I have two chapters within two hours of me. Um, and so it's it's different sort of regionally. But what I would say is if you if you can make the time and, and effort to get out and visit those groups, at least in my experience, it's been an awesome opportunity. I'm, I've moved since I've been in NAVDA, I've moved three times. Um, or been in NAVDA in three different locations in the United States. Uh, and for me, it, there's nothing better than moving to a, a completely new place where you don't know anyone and knowing that you have this group of like-minded folks that you can show up with your dog, you have common interests, you know, hang out, you know, uh, you know if, you, if you like bird hunting, you like bird hunting, right? Um, and, and you may have a setter and I may have a wire hair, but, you know, we like watching our dog point and shooting birds. Uh, and so it's neat to have that. I suspected that's where you were going to go with that. I can't imagine that's, that's gotta be just a great feeling, you know, moving to a, you know, a completely new area knowing that you've got that constant thread, you join the local NAVDA chapter and know that you're going to find a little bit of comfort there and, and a little bit of familiarity. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. We, you know, we've moved, like I said, we've moved a couple of times, um, you know, for, for work opportunities and that actually anytime, you know, that we're considering that might be bashful to admit, but it's one of the first things I look at, (laughs) you know, what chapters are in the area and how far away are they? So, um, that if there ever comes a time that might be a deal breaker. I love it. I love it. That's great. Well, you know, another thing along the lines of social media and where I think NAVDA fits into some of this stuff so well is that we, we talk about R3 and, there's uh, some been some recent podcasts about it, and there's lots of chatter about it, and all these organizations are looking at R3. And one thing that we have found from looking at, you know, running data and doing testing on a lot of the content that we produce is when you involve dogs, bird dogs, mm-hmm. the engagement and the reaction from the social media audience is like through the roof. It's people, people love dogs. And, you know, I, I believe that's one of the reasons why an organization like NAVDA has been so successful and has stood the test of time is just because it's one of those things that brings all of us together, right? No matter what breed you have, no matter what birds you hunt, no matter where you hunt them, it's that common thread that brings all of us together. And so I, I think NAVDA has the opportunity to play such a critical role in the R3 movement. And I think they obviously realize that. And so mm-hmm. it's it's great to see them ma- taking some of these steps and making some of these moves to sort of maintain their presence and expand it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you, you talk about R3 and, and, you know, the first part of that is recruitment, right? So the the guy I went hunting with on Monday is a perfect example of this non-hunter you know at least grew up around firearms um and um through the course of of 
things. Um, his fiance got him uh, a Griff puppy and an Avda subscription. And the next thing you know, he's like whole hog in the, into bird hunting and, you know, scouting covers and finding new places and getting out and wants to take trips somewhere. And, um, you know, it, it's been you know, really neat to see that in two years, you know, he went from not hunting at all to, you know, the, the, the sort of the classic Navda joke of all of a sudden you've got a truck, a cap on it, a drawer system, dog boxes, your truck's covered in dog hair, <laughs> um, you know, full blown. Right. And, and, you know, all because I got a bird dog and I want to see what they can do and I want them to, to, you know, fulfill what they're meant for. Yeah, absolutely. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, you know, I grew up hunting a lot without a dog and I, I had a real strong interest in upland hunting and grouse hunting in particular. And it was mainly driven out of my love for the rough grouse. But since getting my first bird dog four years ago, like I'm a completely transformed upland hunter and I'm like, I'm so much deeper into this stuff. You know, I just, I couldn't even imagine it. And it's, we try to be mindful specifically at Project Up and not to forget about the dogless hunter because it's so possible sure. and there are so many people that enter our world that way. But from my personal experience, the dog completely transformed the game for me in a really, really good way. So if you hunt without a dog, great. If you ever get the chance to do it, you know, try it. Maybe it is for, maybe it's for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's not, but I just, I just think there's, there's so much there. There's a yeah. lot there and it, and it's a huge driver for recruitment. Well, and I would even say like, even if you don't have a dog and want to meet bird hunting folks, and maybe it's something that you have an interest in, go to a training day, yes. you know, find a chapter, introduce yourself, go help. I'm, um, you know, one of my, my very good friends, um, from Wisconsin, he showed up at, at that Navda chapter a full year before he got a puppy um, and, and showed up and helped out and just watched and learned and made friends with people and you know, got invited places. And, um, you, know, we, you know, we have a, a gentleman in our, our chapter right now, our treasurer, you know, he now he, he wants a, a versatile dog and, and is going to pursue that route, but he has a lab, you know, so he can't do the, the testing piece and, and we'll help him, you know, as best we can from a training perspective, obviously that's a, a little bit different. Right. Um, you know, but, but he, like, he's our, one of our executive council members, um, you know, and so, you know, he's at all of our training days and helping out and planning birds and gunning and laying tracks and, um, in all of that stuff. So, so even in NABDA, you know, there, there might be a little bit, little bit of ribbing, you know, as, as friends and family do, but it, it really is welcoming and it's more about getting people involved in hunting, training and testing their dogs. Yeah, definitely. I've heard that recommended before. And I would say that that's probably some of the best advice out there. The way that your friend did it, going to NAVDA stuff a year before just to scope out, because there, mm -hmm. there's a lot there. There's so much there to to training bird dogs, and it's it's in it's a completely different world. So if you have the time and you're interested in getting a dog and you don't have one, or even if you do, I mean, obviously this uh, this advice still applies. But I would say, yeah, that's that's really sound advice from you, Mike, to get to those NAVDA chapters and check things out because you never know who you're going to meet you never know what kind of breeds you're going to see and i'm certain you're going to learn something absolutely so you started you became a navda judge three years ago talk a little bit mm -hmm. about that what value do you get out of it what do you enjoy about it and you know what has that done for you yeah um that, that's a great question I, for me um yeah so i got into navda seven years ago now 
And um, I am immediately felt a sense of you know, connection with folks, uh, an opportunity to get involved, um, and, and just like this sort of unquenchable thirst for learning about bird dogs and dog training and upland hunting. So for, for context, I grew up in the Northeast as a deer hunter. Um, you know, my parents had a farm and um, that was, I lived the Northeast deer hunting you know, sort of lifestyle. And I moved away and moved around and, um, and, and through the course of things, um, decided I wanted a, a bird dog. That's part of why I got a wire hair, um, is I had read an article about their ability to blood track. And, uh, you know, through that, got getting that wire hair, got connected to NAVDA and went, Oh, like this is like hunting all year. Uh, and so, um, you know, really, really fell in love with it. But then, you know, having this dog and wanting to, help them meet their potential and knowing that I know nothing about how to do this. And so, so for me, being a judge really became an extension of that. Uh, as I worked through with my dog through sort of the upper levels of, of testing and, and got closer and closer to being finished, if you will, you know, you could argue that they're never finished, but you know, you, sort, you sort of run out of, of things like new to teach them. Um, but I liked training. I liked helping other people train. And for me, it became uh, I know I'm not getting a puppy anytime soon. Um, you know, at least at the time I had two older dogs, but not as old as they are now. Um, they're 16 and 14. Uh, and so, uh, I knew that, you know, adding a fourth dog to the mix was not going to go over well. And so we can't do that. So for me, part of the apprentice judging was it'll give me an opportunity to go out and see more dogs and, and hone my ability to read a dog and know what I'm looking at. And, and when I read test scores later, you know, knowing what that probably looks like and being able to talk to more folks um, and really just opportunity to jump in with both feet, I would say, you know, through my experience, both apprentice judging and judging is that I've been blessed to travel all over the country um, to see different places, meet different people, see different dogs, you know, to that end, it's fascinating. Um, we were talking about the Minnesota chapter. So uh, this uh, Labor Day, um, last minute, something happened where they needed a judge. And uh, I didn't have anything going on at home. And um, and my wife is immensely supportive. And I got, you know, I had the like, this chapter needs a judge. What do you think? And she was like, you should go. Um, and so literally on a Wednesday, I bought a plane ticket for Thursday, flew to Minneapolis um, and judged a three-day test with um, a judge from Wisconsin and Arizona. Um, now, granted, uh, the judge from Wisconsin I know very well, but it never, um, or excuse me, the other judge was from New Mexico. So I don't know this this gentleman from New Mexico, from Adam. And we, Friday morning, kick dogs loose, get to where we're reading scores. We're on the same page all weekend. You know, never, never have a, a real, you know, sort of row of a discussion. You know, you're always going to have like, I'm at a four and I'm at a three and we need to hash that out. But you know, to see something that's uniform across the country is really cool. And it really helps in, embody faith in the system. And so, um, you know, through my experience, it, it's been neat to see that. And then just continued opportunity to be involved, you know, being involved at the annual meeting this year and, and seeing that and walking around and knowing so many folks from so many different places uh, and then you know, continue to have opportunities to, to serve the organization. Like I, I said earlier, you know, helping start the Instagram page and different things is it's an opportunity to give back because I, I wouldn't have the dog that I do without all of the folks that helped me get there. 
Awesome, man. I know that you're the kind of person that likes to get involved, not unlike myself. You know, I, I like to surround myself with, with people that are interested in the same things that I'm interested in. And that's kind of how I, I think sort of how I find myself in <laughs> some of these messes that I find myself in, but, <laughs> but it's, it, sure. it, you never know what it leads to, man. And it's kind of what you touched on a little bit. What I wanted to get at was I always like to ask people how they got into bird dogs or upland hunting more specifically and mm-hmm. sort of where that led. And you said it was, you know, it came out of deer hunting really. And, and mm-hmm. I'm curious when, at what point, so did you grow up an upland hunter? And if not, when did that start for you? What was the beginning like? Yeah, I did not. Um, I grew up uh, like a hardcore, you know, um, I did most of my hunting in Connecticut, grew up like a hardcore Connecticut you know, gun deer hunter. Um, and that was, you know, having the farm out there, you have a longer season. Um, and so I, I did that a ton. And then when I got to college, um, you know, from an access perspective and whatnot, deer hunting wasn't, wasn't feasible. Um, but some of my buddies, uh, had access to duck hunting. We went, we're never very good, never really shot anything. Um, and so I got out of college and, and sort of went back to deer hunting, got into bow hunting a little bit, um, just to have opportunity. I wasn't living back near my parents anymore and realized that most states don't have a two month rifle season. And so uh, <laughs> I got into bow hunting to, to bow hunt more. And then when the opportunity came, um, to, to get a puppy, uh, I was like, and this is what I want. You know, I, I've looked at this breed for a long time. Um, this is what I'm getting. And thankfully, uh, you know, I, I know I've read a bunch of books and but you still don't know what you're doing. Right. And so the, uh, the gentleman that owned the mail, that the litter came out of called me out of the blue one day and said, Hey, I heard you have a puppy of mine. I actually live 10 minutes from you. And I had, I was living in St. Louis at the time and I had bought my puppy from Northern Illinois, um, like around Rockford, um, from, from the guy that had the the female. Um, so this guy calls me up and says, I have the mail. Your puppy is out of, I'd love to see the puppy. I'd love to meet you. Um, and I'm going training. And I'm like, all right, you know, cool. He's like, all right, I'll pick you up at five 30 tomorrow. Awesome. Um, and so the part of this is probably what sucked me in is the first dog, that I ever like first bird dog I ever really saw was this male, uh, that my buddy was training and he was training for the invitational. So, so, you know, we go put birds out and this dog is steady to wing shot and fall. You know, he's practicing hundred yard blind retrieves with like, you know, this, this sort of penultimate finished dog. And I'm like, you're telling me my dog can do that. Uh, and it, and it, and it just sort of like pushed me like right off the deep end. Um, so the first upland bird I actually shot was over, uh, was over Leo, uh, my buddy Matt's dog. He, you know, it basically, he planted birds and he needed to handle the dog to make sure that he was steady. And he handed me his, his over under and was like, you know, will you shoot? And then my head, I went, well, I've like shot sporting clays a handful of times and, uh, yeah. And I think I'm, I think I might've said like, I might miss. And he went, we all miss. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, and so, you know, sure enough, the dog goes on point. I walk in and kick the bird. Uh, and thankfully I killed it and got the retrieve. And I was like, all right, well, at least I did the first one. So anything after this is, is acceptable if I miss. Uh, and so and after that, it was off to the races. See, that that's just wild to me because it's, it's almost the complete opposite from myself in that Upland hunting led me to bird dogs, whereas bird dogs led you to upland hunting. That just 
Oh, absolutely. You know, it's a really, that's really neat how you can, you never know quite how somebody is going to find their way into it. But I think one thing we all know, at least if you're listening to this podcast, is that upland hunting has a way of taking hold over you. That's for sure. Yeah, immensely. I mean, that's my life. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've obviously, yep. you know, outside of, outside of my wife and, and work, that's, you know, all I do is, is bird dogs and hunting and conservation and, uh, you know, it's, it's really given me uh, something, um, to, to focus on that. I'm, you know, like I joked earlier about the millennial passion thing. Like I'm super passionate about this stuff. Yeah. Yep. Likewise, man, you and I both. So we talked a little bit about how you like to get involved and you are associated with a BHA chapter down in North Carolina. Talk a little bit yep. about what you guys are up to. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm a, a big supporter of backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, BHA for short, um, for, for those that haven't heard of it. Um, I strongly encourage you to, to check it out. Um, backcountry hunters, uh, and anglers is a, is a, uh, organization, um, conservation based organization that, uh, whose primary focus is public lands, public access, uh, stream access, um, and, and things of that nature, um, and, and fighting to, uh, support that increase that or fight against the divestiture of that as we've had some conversations in our political climate lately about um and so that's really neat right like you have rgs or, or aws or, or pheasants forever quail forever um, that are focused on you know species specific conservation whereas you know, bha is more space specific you know i think particularly like from a bird hunter's perspective most of us are bird hunting on public land and we may go places and we may pay to play in terms of access and things like that. But, but for Joe or Sally bird hunter, it's where can I go run my dog from a public access perspective? And so that's super important. And so I'd gotten involved with them when I lived in Wisconsin, was part of the group that started the chapter there, moved to North Carolina and we didn't have a chapter yet. And, and I, through my connections there, I said, you're not here. Why not? I know you're transitioning East. Um, and they w were already in talks to do that and had made some connections. And so, um, I think that I was loud enough on that front when I moved that when they finally made the decision to go in that directive, the direction, you know, it was sort of a natural, you know, Hey Mike, we're doing this. Do you want to be involved? Um, you know, and, and having started help start a chapter, you know, one place, you know, it's always easier the second time. So being able to lend, um, you know, that experience to our current group has been great. You know, I'm, I'm wholly impressed with North, North Carolina BHA, um, you know, really hit the ground running. We actually uh, just got a message today. So we set a goal um, to reach 500 members um, by the end of the year. So we got chartered in April and we wanted 500 um, North Carolina BHA members by December. Um, we missed that goal by 20 um, and know that we have, um, already surpassed it. Uh, and so, um, you know, so that's super awesome to, to see you know, that amount of growth and that amount of excitement, um, been fortunate to do a lot of events. We actually, uh, so, so hunting season is still open here for certain things. So grouse season goes through the end of the month, uh, February, um, and then, um, some other small game, particularly squirrel. And so we're, uh, launching, uh, my dates are a little fuzzy, but I want to, it's, if this airs sort of next week, if you will, it'll be going on. 
a uh, what we're calling our trashy squirrel hunt, which is getting folks together sort of by district, as North Carolina defines them, to go out and go squirrel hunting. And while you're out on public land, um, pick up and collect any trash that you come upon. Um, and we're sort of doing a contest to see uh, who can uh, take the most squirrels, obviously within you know, state limits and things like that, yeah. and also uh, collect the most uh, the most trash out of our, our public land. So um, we're, we're really excited about that. We think it's an awesome opportunity. We've done some things with some learn to hunt programs, uh, and whatnot, and, and we're hoping that this will help bolster that of g- giving the opportunity to get folks out and do something that's fun. You can talk with people, um, you know, give back a little bit by picking up some trash. Very cool. That's a, yeah. that's an interesting concept. I'll be, uh, do you got a bunch of people signed up for the trashy squirrel hunt? Uh, they, I mean, based on social media, there's been a pretty good amount of excitement about it. So I think that, uh, you know, there, there are, are definitely some squirrels that need to get hidden real quick. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, as an upland, specifically with respect to being an upland hunter as BHA is kind of a general group and it's very inclusive, you know, are there things about it that as an upland hunter that you really identify with BHA? Um, I wouldn't say specifically, I, I the funny thing is, um, I think that a lot of folks, at least, a year or two ago looked at BHA and went, you know, that's a Western organization. You know, they're more focused on public lands out West. They more care about mule deer and antelope and elk and, um, you know, you know, your big species and your big habitats out that way. Um, you know, but our, but our current national board chairman, uh, Ryan Bussey is a, is a bird hunter. I mean, if you, yep. Yeah. We interviewed his Instagram, him on for example. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, you know, he's all over the place, bird hunting, um, you know, uh, land, our, our CEO has a lab and does a bunch of duck hunting, a little bit of pheasant hunting. Um, Ty Stubblefield is, uh, one of our sort of chapter, um, sort of oversees broadly all of our chapters. Um, he's got a wire here and does a bunch of bird hunting, um, both upland and duck hunting. So, um, you know, it's, it's all encompassing. Right. And I think that that's for me, that's actually one of the things that I really appreciate about BHA, you know, so, so I started hunting as a deer hunter, you know, that was sort of my first love, if you will. And I got into bird dogs and upland hunting and duck hunting, you know, but if you, for me, you know, it's fascinating to look at sort of all the other things I've been exposed to. So I actually started trapping because of a a NAVDA friend that trapped on the side. Um, and obviously there's a huge, um, sort of rub right between dog folks and and trapping folks sure Um, but everybody has a right to the landscape and so how do we manage that and manage relationships um you know i i I joke you know i i'm got into fly fishing through navda you know some my my mentor and and best friend you know he i think he saw me that i was willing to help um and then a couple of years later he joked that my my goal with you always to was to introduce you to new hobbies until your wife said no more and i haven't found that limit yet <laughs> um, but he he you know got me into fly fishing and so i've i've fly fished um, you know salmon and steelhead in the Milwaukee river gone to canada um you know little streams like the driftless area um even here in the the mountains you know i've i'm while i'm like sort of bird hunting is my super passion and my love and and encompasses the majority of my out of doors experience. I personally, I still enjoy just about everything I can from a hunting and fishing perspective and BHA, I think really encompasses that. I don't care if you're a, a mule deer hunter or an elk hunter or a bird hunter or a squirrel hunter, you know, a fly fisherman, a spin cast fisherman, a, you know, down here, a, a, you know, a cat fisherman or a, a trot liner, 
you know, we'll take all comers as long as you support you know, public lands and waters. Yeah. Not unlike myself in that I love many outdoor pursuits. Upland hunting is certainly at the forefront of that, but I'm starting to hear this a lot in sort of the things that I read and the, maybe the podcast that I listen to with people are clamoring for hunters and anglers to unite under a common mm-hmm. flag because we have done ourselves a disservice in many respects. And I think people are realizing that need. So I believe that probably has a little something to do with sort of the secret sauce that mm-hmm. BHA has going on and the momentum that they're building. And I think it's exciting. I, I really do think it's cool. And I, I did interview Ryan Bussey a while back and I talked about how I wasn't a member and I highlighted some of the some of the things that you touched on and that it when they first started it almost felt like a western organization but eventually they uh they did their job of communicating their message to me and you know I'm now a member but that's kind of why I why I asked you about it and yeah, I just wanted to sort of get your take on it I do think it's cool but let's let's circle back to I want to talk a little bit more about bird hunting in North Carolina because sure I get a lot of people that especially in areas areas of the country that haven't seen as much love as say the upper great lakes just because that's kind of where I'm from and a lot of our interviews have circled on that but areas where we haven't covered them as thoroughly as we plan to I'll get uh-huh. I'll get people that are interested in bird hunting that they're just looking for basics they want to know the basics so with that in mind give me the landscape of upland bird hunting in North Carolina, what are the opportunities available to people kind of with respect to what is the public access like and what birds are you going to be hunting and then sort of take it from there? Yeah. So from a, from an access perspective, I would say Woodcock would be number one. Okay. And I'll, I'll say that this is my opinion. Sure. Woodcock would be number one. Quail would be number two, followed very closely by rough grouse and then sort of wrapping up with the pheasant piece again because that's a very very small area very small population you know but it's the reason that it has survived is because of its inaccessibility um and so that that's a a tough endeavor um you know quail and grouse i think that it's no secret that north carolina is dealing with significant habitat decline, um, you know, from a, from a farming perspective, um, and even for, for quail, um, as well as rough grouse, you know, the early successional habitat piece, um, is crucial. And so, you know, those, those farms are either developed, um, or they're mature hardwoods, um, and, and not, um, being appropriately managed from a quail perspective, as well as you know the introduction of of fescue and other grasses that are prohibitive for a, a ground nesting bird like quail, it, is problematic. And so we're we're seeing that. I'm, I'm always baffled that we have quail in North Carolina, but if you look at the you know, the season projections, if you will, that that Quail Forever puts out, right? North Carolina hasn't been listed in there the last few years, um, and they're here. You know, you will find them, uh, but trying to get into them and get into them consistently is work. Um, like no, no bones about that. Yeah. Similarly, from a grouse perspective, they're here. If you can find them, um, you know, you're, you're going to be hunting in the mountains in the Western part of the state at very high elevation. Um, you know, trying to find, um, cuts or balds, um, you know, with, with some sunlight to get some 
shrubby habitat. Um, you know, that's a huge problem that we're having in the state of North Carolina is the, uh, the Nantahala and Pisco National Forests, um, uh, you know, have barely cut anything, you know, in the last decade to two decades. And so, um, you know, there, there's continued conversation about their forest management plan, um, and, and lack of action on that forest management plan. And until, till we do some cutting, you know, rough grouse is still going to be a, a, a tough animal to pursue. You know, it's as a grouse hunter from Wisconsin and for the love of the bird and, and knowing that, that it's a challenge and a, and a trophy, if you will, every time you encounter one, let alone bring one to hand, I still go. And part of that is because I'm used to hunting, you know, alder thickets and swamps and hummocks of the Midwest. So to go to 4,500 feet to grouse hunt is pretty interesting. You know, it's like chucker hunting with on the East coast with lots of trees. Um, you know, so it's still an experience, but from an accessibility perspective, if somebody's new woodcock's the way to go. I mean, if you, you know, so if you're in the Piedmont sort of the central part of the state to the coast, um, you know, you know, our season runs uh, from the beginning of December to the end of January. Um, you know, the, the limit is, is three. Um, you know, if you, you, you know, that could take a while or to, to, to get or to, to not achieve, or, uh, you know, if the flight's in and they're here and you're in them, it's like chaos. Yep. Um, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, what you're looking for there is, is, you know, very thick, shrubby, um, probably very thorny habitat along creek bottoms, you know, moist soils, um, you know, things like that. And, and so we have, we have a fair amount of, fair amount of our game lands, at least in the Piedmont around where I live, um, surround, um, major lake systems that, you know, like the power company, uh, owns and leases back to the state for access or, or for whatever reason, um, and so there's all these like streams and fingerlings and um, these low-lying areas that do provide a lot of, of access. Even even the Uwari National Forest um, has a lot of of these wet, shrubby, thick areas. And and I haven't experienced it, but even a lot of my friends that woodcock hunt, you know, they'll be woodcock hunting and run into quail. Um, and so it, quail almost actually become this sort of byproduct uh, in hunting. Uh, to woodcock, you know, as you're, as you're working, cause you're working that similar, very, very thick, um, habitat from, from Monday, my forearms are still bearing, uh, you know, the, the scabs of, of the, the thick thorniness that we had to push through, but we, <laughs> we found birds, you know, um, you know, we, we moved around 10 birds in about two and a half, three hours. Um, and, and in one area it was, you know, gangbusters, like we couldn't, you know, like, one dog would go on point and we try to get to that one and the other dog would go on point. And then, you know, like you're trying to get to one and, and flush the bird and another bird flushes. It was just, you know, like, you know how it is in, in the Midwest, like when they're in, they're in yep. and it's madness. And so, um, you know, and that was, you know, three days ago now it's been 25 degrees. So they probably push South. Um, but I think that, I think there's some research that shows that, if there's that frost line and that frost line moves a little bit, they will move back and forth a little bit. So for example, um, at the beginning of January, we got a, a big cold front and the ground froze and they moved out and then it thawed and they moved back. Uh, so it's a, you know, while they are migratory, as long as the weather's right and the ground's right, you know, they're here. Yeah, definitely. I think, 
I think we've started to see that a little bit like anecdotally. And I think some of the GPS tracking experiments, mm-hmm. you know, we just had, just had Eric Blumberg on the podcast. I think they've, yeah. they've kind of shown that like during the fall migration as the, as that frost line moves down, they'll kind of hop back and forth. And I, I do know that when I was, I was fortunate enough to hunt Woodcock in Louisiana three, maybe three years ago. I just mm-hmm. happened to the, the time that I was there was really poorly timed in that the temperatures were very hot and it was like 70, it was like 70 pushing 80 degrees when it was supposed to be 50 to 60 and the yep. woodcock were basically gone. And the locals that I was hunting with suspected that they just sort of hopped North and were trying to get out of that heat a little bit. So it's interesting, yep. but, um, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about kind of hunting woodcock in that area in access, Mm -hmm. but with somebody that has a perspective of hunting rough grouse in the Great Lakes States and then going after it down there in North Carolina, you talked about the differences as far as elevation and what the cover makeup is. And you alluded to some of the things that are maybe hampering the grouse populations down there. What is a day like chasing grouse down in North Carolina? Is it are you happy to see one bird? Are you happy to see five birds? What is it? What What is it like from somebody that has kind of that perspective? Yeah, I, I would say so. My perspective is I'm happy to see one bird, but I'm also newer here. Sure, um, sure. You know, um, you know, and I think that that if you're in the right stuff, you'll move probably more than that. Um, I think that most folks would say if in a day, you know, you move like five to eight birds would be a really good day. Okay. Um, and I think that there, you know, there are a lot of folks that go out and don't move anything and, and they, you know, keep at it. Um, you know, I, and it's all perspective. I've gone out in the Midwest, particularly when I was learning how to grouse hunt and not move anything all day. Now yep. Yep. probably wasn't in the right area, but, um, you know, that, that certainly happens, but, um, you know, you, you can tell that they're there and, and you talk to folks and, and they're getting into them or moving around and, and, and particularly here, I think because birds are so scarce, you definitely, you know, get the, the much more tight lipped, um, about where to go and sure. um, what to look for. But the funny thing is, you know, this year was really the first, first year I really got after it and it clicked. I went a couple of times last year and being new and just sort of stumbling around, it never really worked out. But this year, I can remember a particular point where we were hunting through some stuff and I was like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. And we came over a rise and I was, was with a guy that, that had never really grouse hunted before. And so he, you know, it said like I've moved birds here and, and here. And so we were sort of bouncing between those places and we came over a rise and I looked and I was like, Oh, that's what we're looking for. You know, cause you do it long enough. You kind of get the eye of, you know what they like yep. and it may not be, you know, it's definitely not an aspen thicket, right, or an alder thicket. But I, it was one of those like I'm looking at all these hardwoods and these laurel bushes, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, like here's all these little trees with crab apples and thorns and vines everywhere. I was like, if there is a grouse, it will be right there. Yeah. Um, and then sort of you know hopping between you know those covers and um, you know and definitely in like. For for me, that day was a victory just in having the dogs get birdie a couple times um, and finding some shells on the ground and, and going, I know what I'm looking at now. And so now I know that, that this is the blueprint to go in other places and um, and continue that and build on it. Because for me, part of it, 
is about the adventure. I don't think that you can be a grouse hunter everywhere, anywhere, and and be a limit hunter. Yeah, that's damn near impossible in my opinion. It's more about the love of the game and the pursuit and watching the dog and and this this the the dance between the two and you and how like am I going to get you this time or are you going to get away? And you know, you almost develop the relationship with these birds of like, you got me this time. I'll get you next time. Um, yeah. That, that makes it fun. Yeah. Unless you're our buddy, Jim McCann up there in Alaska, who's going for grouse grand slams in an afternoon. I don't, I don't think yeah, many, people exactly. are, many people are chasing limits, but uh, yeah, I, I'm getting, I'm getting the sense from you. I don't know if this is true, but I'm getting the sense from listening to you one of the real luxuries of hunting in the upper great lake states is the rough grouse and woodcock mixed bag. Is that, oh, is that not the case down in North Carolina? Cause like the way you've described the landscape, it's almost like when you're chasing grouse up in the mountains, are you not finding woodcock or is it few and far between? How does that work? Uh, that's a good question. I think there are other folks I think that could speak to that more. Sure. Um, more in depth, I would say for me, you can find them near each other, um, but not as in close proximity of the upper Midwest. You know, I, I, you know, so I was up in Wisconsin this October, um, and we regularly were moving, you know, with woodcock grouse within cuts. Um, you know, my experience hasn't been like that here. I would say I do know that we went to a spot, um, and moved a bird or two. Um, and then other guys that were there had bagged woodcock. Um, but I think that, you know, so we, you know, that we parked at the bottom and hiked up and hunted, um, hunted this ridge line, and there was more creeks and, and, um, grassy shrubby areas on the bottom. And I'm willing to bet that they hunted the bottom. Um, whereas, so it's not, my experience is it's not interchangeable. Now somebody may have a different experience. I, sure. I just probably don't have enough experience to say for sure. Got it. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because it, you know, you were you were you were very clearly describing two different experiences, and I found that interesting. So, yeah, but yeah, for absolutely, sure. yeah, my but, experience, and, and I think that too with the mountains, it gets a lot colder, a lot faster, and sure. so there, you know, it'll be interesting to look at, at Eric's research to see what they get off GPSs for birds in the mountains. How long do they stay there? Yeah, you know, things like that, or are they push? Are they always sort of pushing coastal? Yeah, definitely. All right, circling back to Woodcock and kind of, you know, with respect to the state as a whole, North Carolina upland bird hunting, mm-hmm. what is the public land factor? Are you hunting 100% public land? How does that how does that work? I would say for me if I'm going after Woodcock, I am I'm 100% public land. Now, my buddy's going to hear this and argue with me because walking out of his duck marsh once he shot a woodcock, um, <laughs> you know, over his short hair. Um, not don't recommend shooting woodcock with steel fours, but to each their own. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, we could certainly hunt his place, but I hunt more, more public land. Right. Um, and so, uh, that for me is, is, you know, where I go all the time, pretty much for my hunting. I have, I have the, my buddy's, uh, spot that we duck hunt out of, uh, that is fantastic you know, duck swamp, uh, that I'm very blessed. They lets me come hunt it. But from, from an upland bird perspective is public land only. Right. So certainly, you know, you can find woodcock and, and upland birds on private land, but the mm-hmm. public land, the public land aspect of hunting there, it, there is, 
landscape that's accessible i mean are they are they large tracks what is their what is like their walk-in access program you know every state kind of has their own thing like what are the areas that you're able to go hunt are they big huge areas of habitat are they more small pockets what does it look like yeah um so we don't have a walk-in hunt access program um like a lot of folks out west have or even the midwest is starting to um bring about with like voluntary public access or, or walk and hunt access areas, things like that here. It's uh, game land specific. And so at least around me, I have three or four very large, um, you know, game lands um, that I hunt at um, pretty much exclusively. And what I'm always looking for, and again, I, I talked about, you know, that they're, they're surrounding or near, um, very large bodies of water. So I'm always looking like particularly for woodcock, I'm looking for, um, you know, the, the streams or rivers or offshoots or valleys, um, to, to hunt. And some of those, uh, you know, you, you could park on a, what would be considered a very major road, you know, drop your tailgate and get in the woods and be in a woodcock in five, 10 minutes. Um, some of those are, you know, park at the gate, walk a mile in the woods and then you start hunting um, or, or walk down the path for a ways and then start hunting. Um, but in terms of, of access, it, it is really good. What I would say, you know, so one of the things that North Carolina does um, and it's game lands for duck hunting is they, uh, in a, a number of areas, particularly um, near where I am and around uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill is they do uh, duck impoundments. Uh, and so um, they are bringing, you know, they're either utilizing local water to flood areas, uh, utilizing naturally flooded areas, um, you know, or, or piping water in. And, um, you know, that creates in and of itself this sort of moist soil habitat uh, that we all know woodcock like. And so, um, you know, that's a great place to start. I've got a lot of, of buddies that go uh, duck hunting and talk about running into woodcock on the way out or, or getting scared in the dark when they almost step on one. Um, you know, so, so starting there and sort of expanding out, um, you know, the challenge that you do run into is that, that, uh, woodcock season and duck season run concurrent. So I wouldn't probably go for a, a daybreak woodcock hunt or you're going to run into some duck hunters, um, you know, but later in the day or midday, um, you know, or keep an eye on when the impoundments, um, you know, are, are, are open, you know, they, there are some specific regulations about when you can hunt in the impoundments or around the impoundments. Um, that is location specific. So uh, there's lots of rules and regulations around that. So make sure you're paying attention. I, I, that's something I've found since moving here is that there's a lot of specificity based on location. Uh, and so there isn't a lot, of, a lot of things where you can speak generally about like the impoundments, for example, you need to know sort of where you're going, when you're going. Um, a lot of the game lands have, restrictions so for example so we can't hunt on sunday here um oh, I, I joke one of those states uh, yeah yeah so we're at blue law state which is a challenge um my wife uh joked so we moved here for her work um and i didn't realize that or look at it um you were too busy looking up navda chapters no well, i was well so the challenge is <laughs> and i you know I did this to myself because i found the job and said i think you'd be great for this you should apply and so <laughs> But then, like, I can remember sitting in my house in Wisconsin, and we were living in our basement because we were showing our house to sell it. And so, you know, with three dogs, we, like, basically, like, just sequestered ourselves to the basement to not ruin the rest of the house. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting on the couch, and I have this, like, oh, no. Like, I had this very loud exclamation that probably involved an expletive. 
and my <laughs> wife was like, what, are you okay? And I was like, I can't hunt on Sunday in North Carolina. <laughs> and she just looked at me like, you're seriously this upset? And I was like, no, you don't understand. Clearly. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, you can't hunt on Sunday here, which is a problem. Um, but maybe, well, it, it is slowly changing what I would say that people are going to be like, well, you can, they just pass the law. So they did just pass a law that you can hunt on Sundays on private land, you know, between the hours of daybreak and 9 a.m. and then noon till sunset, um, you know, to protect that sort of church hour, if you will, um, or church hours. Now, the challenge with that is all of the public lands in North Carolina are managed by the, um, you know, by by NC Wildlife, and, um, and they currently have day restrictions. So game lands, are uh, permit only where you either apply or pay for a special permit to use the property. Um, a three day a week area. So, so broken out in the three specific days of the week or a six day a week. And so no, currently no game land properties are open to sun to hunting on Sunday. And so, um, from a public land perspective, that's prohibitive also. Gotcha. Well, that was a very uh, detailed overview and, uh, <laughs> look at at bird hunting in north carolina i appreciate that because like i said we do get a lot of i get a lot of emails from listeners in in areas that we haven't covered yet and they want to know that information so that's cool yeah absolutely hopefully i got it all right well right right you know (laughs) at the end of the day you and i are just two bird hunters drinking beer on friday afternoon talking you know this is true. <laughs> so, and, and many inconsistency has been shared in that type right, of scenario. Right. So, I mean, we certainly do our best to to spout out accurate and uh, just information, but it is we can't be held to that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, man. Well, this was gr- now. All right, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here pretty quick, but sure. uh, we we had you and I were talking a little bit about woodcock hunting down there and sort of the opportunity for conservation in that you know i just i just interviewed eric blumberg earlier this week and got the podcast out and we were talking about you know he's doing research on a bird and this is this this comes from a a co-worker of mine tripway he's at the rough grouse society he won't be there for much longer but he his one of his big things is he wanted to he wanted to show people and he felt like eric's project was just a shining example of this and i say eric's project eric would probably you know, he would want me to give credit where credit to it's Eric is working on this project with a lot of other people, but mm-hmm. trip wanted to highlight the fact that the project that Eric is working on highlights a bird. You put a GPS tracker on a bird in Maine and you watch that bird fly all the way down to Louisiana. And it it's a visual representation that the bird that you take care of and create habitat for in Louisiana is the same bird that you take care of and create habitat for in Maine, in North Carolina, in Georgia, everywhere along its path. It's the same bird, and it's a flag or a banner that we should all be able to unite under, right? We are all fighting for the same bird and the same opportunity to observe, pursue, and hunt that bird. And mm-hmm. and along those lines, you know, you're starting to see some opportunity for for people to sort of unite under that banner. And I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit and maybe some things that you might be working on in the future here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
thank you very much. So, um, so I actually, uh, when I was at the NAVDA meeting, I had an opportunity to, to sit down with, uh, with Ben Jones, the new CEO of Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, uh, and have a conversation about wanting to, to get more involved. You know, as I shared earlier about being super passionate about this stuff, um, you know, sort of one thing led to another. And, and so I'm, I'm, for all intents and purposes, becoming the point person um, to to try and develop support for the for Woodcock for the American Woodcock Society and in, in the development of American Wood, Woodcock Society chapters in you know Southeast Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. Um, you know, seeing what interest there is out there in terms of, of forming those organizations, supporting this bird, um, helping support the study. You know, those folks are here and doing that work right now, um, you know, supporting the, the habitat that they need here from a wintering perspective. Uh, you know, because I think Eric actually did talk about it in the podcast last week. You know, part of what they're looking at in the study is what is happening along the way in, in is there, and if so, how much mortality is there along the way, and how is that related to quality habitat or lack thereof? Yep. Um, and again, from a from an access perspective, um, you know, I think that the woodcock is immensely underrated, right? Like everybody talks about the the gentleman Bob White and its ability to, you know, to hold tight for a dog and bring out the best, you know, and the the you know the highlight of a of a dog on point and staunch and you know showing you where birds are. Arguably quail don't generally hold tight enough for you to take a picture of the dog and the bird in <laughs> one photo. Yeah. Right. Um, and my buddy, uh, that I was just out hunting with, uh, you know, so actually this was the first time I was able to do that was his dog slammed the super hard point in these, um, real, real thick, uh, thorns. And he was like, Oh, I see the bird. And I had told him earlier that day that I had never actually seen like the dog and the bird all in one. And, uh, it was the end of the day and I hadn't shot a bird yet. And I was like, well, I'm gonna go kick this bird up. So get ready. Uh, and he was like, no, take a minute, come over here. You're like, you gotta see this. Um, and you know, that, that bird held super tight, you know, for the opportunity to, for me to get over and, and see it. Right. And so, um, you know, we're actually really looking forward to, you know, so we have, before the nesting season, you can still run dogs. And so the opportunity to just go out with cameras, you know, and keep the dogs in shape, keep, yep. the, keep them tuned up from a training perspective. And who doesn't like good pictures of their dog uh, on point at that. And so, um, you know, so all of that saying, you know, there's so much that can be, can be done from an accessibility perspective with this bird and excitement. And, and I think that it's really underrated. And so if there are folks out there that are interested, you know, that are big woodcock hunters in the Southeast or, or maybe want to get uh, involved in woodcock hunting, obviously season's over, but you know, we're going to try and get out and, and run dogs as long as the weather's good on them. Um, you know, supporting the organization, uh, maybe working on getting some, some local uh, chapters and committees together to, to do some fundraisers for American Wood, Woodcock Society. Um, please don't hesitate to reach out and contact me. Awesome. Appreciate that. I will make sure that we get your contact information in the show post so people can look that up there. Sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, you raise a lot of good points in talking about the opportunity that Woodcock provide. I mean, we talked a lot about R3 in the beginning of this podcast, but what better bird uh -huh. to introduce somebody to upland bird hunting and shooting, shooting birds over point or, you know, or any dog really, but and yeah. we'll talk about an opportunity to introduce somebody to upland hunting. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. This was a, a ton of fun. Uh, we covered a lot. 
we talked NAVDA, we talked Upland Birds, we talked Dawes. We didn't talk Double Guns, but that's all right. We'll 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 talk about that next time. Although, maybe before I let you go, uh, are you a are you a double gun guy? What's uh, do you have a, do you have an old faithful that you take with you everywhere you go? Do you mix it up? What's uh, what do you? Carry? I do. Well, so I'm, I'm admittedly I don't. Uh, my my collection is not broad, right. um, and I am a, I am a, a strong proponent of if you've got it, use it. Uh, and All so right. when I um, so I got an Avenue and I had the good old trusty rusty eight seventy, uh, and so that was um, you know what I had used, and then. Um, probably after a year or two, I made the commitment. You know, part of the big thing, like with NAVDA, with training and test and safety is the the double gun piece, right? Like when that gun's broke open, you know it's in a safe position. Yep. And so I made the commitment to do that, and I, I stumbled upon uh, uh, 1970s, I'm not sure of the year, uh, Beretta BL4. And I love that gun something fierce. Um, it, <laughs> it fits me super well. Um, I shoot it really well for me shooting um in and that is my i love that gun dearly it's a 12 gauge so i can do anything with it i shoot a lot of business so that's not a problem i can't shoot steel out of it it's fixed choke uh, improved cylinder mod um i will say my my safe queens when i get them there um i was home over christmas and i raided my dad's uh, safe for my grandfather's old Belgium A5s that were also workhorses and show it. So I'm in the process of trying to clean those up and, and get them serviceable and, and fix them up if they're not working quite right. And my goal for the 2019-2020 season is to take each of those out, at least for a hunt, hopefully shoot something with them. Um, but a Belgian A5 is a whole lot heavier than my 7-pound BL4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, man. I love it. Great stuff. Good stuff for a, for a Friday evening conversation. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing a beer with me and talking all about this stuff. It was a lot of fun. We will, we'll keep in touch. You and I, we've got some stuff to, to go over for sure. You know, it'd be fun to obviously be great to get out in the field someday, but, um, certainly we've got, uh, we've got some other stuff to work on. So thanks for the time. Thanks for joining the podcast and we'll look forward to hearing from you again, man. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. All right. Take care, Mike. See ya. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you for tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Gordy and Sons Outfitters, Yukonuba Premium Dog Food, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Remember, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to, films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.